Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them they see and that which they have not heard they understand. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hid their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all." He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked, and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. This is the word of the Lord. The text you just heard is one of the most remarkable prophecies in the entirety of the Hebrew Bible, written some seven centuries before Christ. It depicts in graphic detail the passion of Israel's Messiah. The discovery of the Isaiah scroll dating to about 100 BC amongst the Dead Sea Scrolls in 1947 together with the fact that the Hebrew Bible has been in the custody both of the Jews and Christians, leaves no room for doubt that this text predates Christ um, by, um, by hundreds of years. The Isaiah scroll dates to about 100 BC. As William Paley remarked, it's a famous Christian philosopher who wrote in the uh, 17, 18, uh, late 17, early 1800s, the record comes out of the custody of adversaries. The Jews, as an ancient father well observed, are our librarians. The passages in their copies, as well as in ours, with many attempts to explain it away, none has ever been made by them to discredit its authenticity. Indeed, no other text in scripture can be credited with bringing more Jews to Christ, to the foot of the cross, than this passage. 
The text describes a prophet or a religious teacher, as the term servant employed throughout the passage makes apparent, to come from the Jewish people. He would be marked by exemplary conduct and would go on to be highly exalted. The individual, moreover, would be exhibited to public gaze with his face and body disfigured and exposed. Isaiah 52 verse 15 indicates that he would sprinkle many nations, just as the priest, according to the Leviticus, would sprinkle the mercy seat that covered the Ark of the Covenant with the blood for the atonement of God's people. So likewise, this servant is said to sprinkle the nations, not just the Jewish people, but also the Gentiles. And so we see that this servant functions in the capacity of a priest by sprinkling the nations with the blood of a sacrifice. And as we continue reading throughout throughout Isaiah 53, we discover that the blood with which this priest sprinkles the nation is none other than that of his own. So he serves as the priest as well as the sacrifice itself. We also learn that um, though this servant is in fact the promised Messiah, he would be scarcely recognized for who he was. That is, the Messiah was to be rejected by his own people. And yet nonetheless, bring representatives of all nations to recognize the God of Israel. That's a remarkable feat. Um, Isaiah 53 verses 1 through 4 indicate that the Messiah was supposed to be rejected by his own people. And yet according to um, Isaiah 52.15, Isaiah 42.6, Isaiah 49.6, the Messiah was supposed to bring representatives of all nations to recognize the God of Israel. Now who has accomplished this remarkable feat except for our Lord Jesus Christ? Um, It's a remarkable uh, confirmation of his messianic identity. We also read that he would be despised when tried, and ultimately rejected. His life would be one of grief and sorrow. Not only, would be, not, not only would he not be esteemed, but people would hide their faces from him, considering him accursed and forsaken by God. And yet all this sorrow would be borne for the sake of God's people. He would be pierced as well as scourged, yet not for his own sins, but rather for those of others, which were in consequence atoned for. His suffering would be voluntary and endured with much patience. He's likened to a lamb led to the slaughter, which cannot help evoke images of the Passover, where the last of the ten plagues uh, um, was the smiting of the firstborn of every Egyptian household. And the Hebrews would be, were instructed to sacrifice a lamb, to smear the blood of this lamb on their doorposts, such that when the angel of death saw the blood on the doorposts, he would pass over those homes, leaving the firstborn unharmed. And so Christ becomes our Passover lamb. And it's no coincidence that Jesus' death by crucifixion took place on the day of Passover, Nisan 15th. And given the symbolic import of Jesus' death at Passover, this remarkable correspondence also carries evidential value in confirming Jesus' identity. This man would not speak a word before his accusers in his defense. He would be given a judicial trial and unjustly condemned and sentenced to death. He would be appointed to die with the wicked and the rich involved in his burial, even though he was completely innocent, as even Pilate declared him to be. He would be ultimately cut off and die, and yet in some sense see future generations of his followers, which uh, is suggestive of resurrection. So as many of you know, I'm a professor, and uh, as a professor, I like to list some learning objectives for our sermon uh, today. So what are some of the objectives I want to drive home um, throughout uh, today's uh, sermon? Uh, 
So hopefully by the end, we'll understand the apologetic implications of Isaiah 53, how it uh, carries evidential value in confirming Jesus' messianic identity. I want to encourage an appetite for deeper study of Scripture. I want to give you a glimpse into the, the riches and depth of the Bible, and in so doing, encourage you to delve in deeply for yourself. I want you to understand what exactly Christ has done for us on the cross, and in so doing, to help you to esteem Christ more in your hearts. So first, we will look at some of the most common Jewish, uh, we'll look at the most common Jewish interpretation of Isaiah 53. Second, we'll look at the evidence that the text is indeed about the Messiah. Third, we will explore the evidence for the servant spoken of by the prophet, spoken of by Isaiah is himself a divine person. And fourth, we will consider how the text is fulfilled in Jesus of Nazareth. So, is the text about Israel. So, among contemporary Orthodox Jews, uh, the dominant view of Isaiah 53 is that it concerns the nation of Israel. Now, I don't have, to get in, I don't have time to get into all the arguments uh, this morning, but uh, I recently, just this week, in fact, published an essay on my website, jonathanmcclatchy.com, um, it's the latest article published uh, where I do a deep dive on Isaiah 53, interacting with all of the main arguments and counterpoints, um, in particular interacting with Rabbi Tobias Singer, uh, the leading uh, Jewish anti-missionary apologist. And uh, it, was, it was very, very detailed. I think it was about 18,000 words all in all. So if you want like the deep dive, then I'll refer you to that. So today, though, I'm going to give two short arguments why this text cannot be about Israel and two arguments for taking the servant to be about the Messiah. So the first argument. So, though this, so this interpretation was made popular by Rashi, who was a medieval uh, French rabbi. Um, but this interpretation goes back at least uh, as far as the early Christian writer Oregon, who lived in the late second, early third centuries. And he wrote uh, about encountering this interpretation in a disputation with certain Jews. So in his Contracelsus, he says, and I quote, Now I remember that on one occasion, as a dis at a disputation held with certain Jews who were reckoned wise men, I quoted these prophecies, in which any Jewish opponent replied that these prophecies uh, bore reference to the whole people, regarded as one individual, and as being in a state of dispersion and suffering, in order that many proselytes would be, uh, might be gained on account of the dispersion of the Jews among numerous heathen nations. And in this way... Uh, he explained the words, thy form shall be of no reputation among men. And then they to whom no message was sent respecting him shall see, and the expression, a man under suffering. So th this is the sole reference in ancient literature to the national interpretation of Isaiah 53. Indeed, the messianic interpretation of this text goes at least as far back as the Targum Onkelos, which is the first century, and the text has been interpreted to be referring to the Messiah in most traditional Jewish writings until recent times. Now, to, what did Oregon have to say in response to this interpretation? Well, he says, uh, many arguments were employed on that occasion during the discussion to prove that those predictions regarding one particular person were not rightly applied by them to the whole nation. But we seem to press them hardest with the expression, because of the iniquities of my people, was he led away unto death. For if the people, according to them, are the subject of the prophecy, how is the man said to be led away to death because of the iniquities of the people of God, unless he be a different person from that people of God? And who is this person, save Jesus Christ, by whose stripes they who believe on him are healed? 
uh, when he had spoiled the principalities and powers that were ever us, that, that were over us, and had made a show of them openly on his cross. Now, Oregon's challenge is quite correct, and it may indeed stand as the most devastating challenge to the national interpretation of this text. So in verses 8 and 9 of Isaiah 53, we read, By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, though he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. Now, throughout the book of Isaiah, uh, the phrase, my people, occurs 22 other times. And it always denotes the nation of Israel. And so how is it then that uh, the Messiah or the, the servant concerned in this text is judged or cut off from the land of the living for the transgression of my people, namely Israel, having himself done no wrong and there being no deceit in his mouth? That doesn't make any sense. Now, how do Jews typically respond to that challenge? Well, the, the most typical rejoinder uh, to that concern is that the speaker throughout Isaiah 53 is in fact the Gentile nations. So, um, and, uh, and so they argue that the, that the speaker throughout this passage is, is the Gentile nations, so my people are, is referring to the Gentiles. The biggest problem, though, with that interpretation is that the first-person singular pronouns are used consistently throughout the chapter by God. Uh, my servant, my righteous servant, therefore I will. Um, and furthermore, the onlookers of the text, without exception, consistently speak in the first-person plural. Our message, uh, that we should look at him, that we should desire him, we esteemed him not, our griefs, our sorrows, we esteemed him stricken, our transgressions, our iniquities, brought us peace, we are healed, all we, each of us, the iniquity of us all. And the plural language ceases in verse 6. And so whoever was the speaker up to verse 6, he's not the speaker by the time you get to verse 8. And so I would, I would contend then that my people is most plausibly understood as the nation of Israel, which devastates the Jewish national interpretation. Second argument, so a further reason to think that this text is not personifying the nation of Israel is that God uses the nations to smite Israel for Israel's sins. And Israel's smiting does not bring healing to those other nations. Rather, instead, God judges those nations for overdoing the punishment. Uh, if you look at Jeremiah 30, Jeremiah 31, Zechariah 1, Isaiah 10, Isaiah 29, God then turns his hand in judgment against those nations, Assyria, Babylon, etc. Um, furthermore, if you look at various texts throughout Isaiah, we see that Israel is not spotless and without blemish and without sin and there being no deceit in his mouth. Isaiah 64, 6, we have all become like one who is unclean. And all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities, like the wind, take us away. Or as I 6, 5, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. This doesn't sound like Isaiah 53, verse 9. He had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. So then, having dispatched of the interpretation that it refers to national Israel, let's then turn to whether this text is indeed about the Messiah. Um, again, I have several arguments. See my article for more detail, but I'll just give you two. Um, so first argument is, if you look at Isaiah 49, verses 1 through 7, 
It says, listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention to peoples from afar. The Lord called me from the womb. From the body of my mother, he named my name. He made my mouth like a sharp sword, and in the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me a polished arrow, in his quiver, he hid me away. And he said to me, you are my servant, Israel, in whom I will be glorified. Now, Jewish uh, apologists will um, latch on to this reference in verse 3, you are my servant, Israel. See, the servant is evidently the nation of Israel. Ah, but keep reading. But I said, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing in vanity. It surely my right is with the Lord and my recompense with my God. And now the Lord says, he who formed me from the womb to be a servant to bring Jacob back to him, that Israel might be gathered to him. For I am honored in the eyes of the Lord and my God has become my strength. He says, it is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. And so here we have an individual who's called Israel, who's distinguished from national Israel because he restores and redeems, regathers national Israel. So he cannot himself be Israel. Um, And the the text goes on, uh, thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel and his Holy One, to one deeply despised, the poor by the nations, the servant of rulers, kings shall see and arise, princes, and they shall prostrate themselves because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel has chosen you. So you can see very clear intertextual links to the text in Isaiah 53, indicating this is speaking about the same individual. Why then is he called Israel and yet distinguished from national Israel? Well, I would contend that the Messiah represents the true Israel. He succeeds where Israel failed. In fact, if we go back to Isaiah 42, we see a contrast set up between the righteous servant, the Messiah, and the unrighteous servant, Israel. Um, Isaiah 42 says in verse 1 through 7, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen whom my soul delights. I put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth. And the coastlands wait for his law. Thus says God the Lord who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, has, who has, gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it, I am the Lord, I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. Um, so this is speaking about the same individual as we see in Isaiah 49, because he's given as a covenant for the people, he's a light for the nations. Um, and um, contrast that, though, with what's said in the same chapter of the unrighteous servant Israel. Verses 18 through 20. Hear you deaf and look you blind that you may see. Who is blind by my servant? Or deaf is my messenger whom I send? Who is blind is my dedicated one? Or blind is the servant of the Lord? He sees many things, but does not observe them. His ears are open, but he does not hear. So Christ is the true Israel. Isaiah 11 is another text concerning the same individual, where it says that there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. A branch from his root shall bear fruit. Right? Sound familiar from Isaiah 53, 1? that he's a ritter of dry ground. It's the same word, sheresh, used in Hebrew in both cases. The spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. All right, very familiar again from what we saw in Isaiah 42. It's the same figure. The spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And as the light shall be in the fear of the Lord, he shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. But with righteousness, he shall judge the poor. Again, same figure who rules with utter justice and righteousness and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips, he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. In verse 10, in that day, the root of Jesse, 
who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. Now, even the medieval commentator Rashi, um, who adopts the Israel interpretation of Isaiah 53, even he accepts that this text is about the Messiah. And you can see it's about the same individual as what we see in Isaiah 53. Isaiah 9 is another text concerning the same individual. Verses 6 and 7. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government should be upon his shoulder, and his name should be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. And so uh, we can see that... um, He's uh, it's the same individual who establishes this global justice, and he's, uh, he's assigned various titles, including Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Now, that very title, Mighty God, El Gabor, is used in the very next chapter, in Isaiah 20, 21, to speak of Yahweh. This messianic individual is none other than God himself. He's called Wonderful Counselor in this text. The very same title applied to Yahweh in Isaiah 28, 29. So, um, so I, I rest my case then that this is speaking about the, the Messiah who happens to be Yahweh, as we see from Isaiah 9.6. He's a divine incarnation of Yahweh himself. Let's turn then quickly to a second argument, which are intertextual links with other Old Testament books. So Zechariah 9, 9 through 12, uh, we read a text again that is widely accepted, uh, even by Rashi, to be uh, a messianic text. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. So again, very similar descriptions, very similar job description to what we see in Isaiah 53 in relation to God's, God's servant. As for you also because of the blood of my covenant with you, right? We see the blood of the covenant in uh, Isaiah, that the servant is given as the covenant itself, and it involves blood which, with which he sprinkles the nations, according to Isaiah 53. I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Again, very similar to Isaiah. And so we see that because of these intertextual links, this, I think, is pretty decisive that the servant is the Messiah. And finally, Micah 5, verses 2 through 5. Uh, Again, a text that even Rashi agrees is a messianic text. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth from me, one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old from ancient days. Therefore, he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth, which evokes memories of Isaiah 7.14. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel, again, restoring and regathering national Israel, and he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth. Sound familiar? And he shall be their peace. Right, Prince of Peace in Isaiah 9. It's very clearly speaking about the same individual as whom we see in the book of Isaiah. Now let's turn our attention then to the fulfillment of this text in Jesus of Nazareth specifically. Uh, once it's been shown that the servant of Isaiah 53 and indeed... And indeed um, that he's the Messiah, that he's indeed a divine person. The move to identifying the servant as Jesus is an easy one. Who besides Jesus, after all, has, despite being rejected by his own people, nonetheless brought representatives of all nations to recognize and indeed worship the God of Israel? 
Not only did this same individual claim to be Israel's Messiah and God incarnate, but there was also a, a powerful historical argument that Jesus rose bodily from the dead. Again, uh, adding to that growing cumulative body of evidence for his messianic identity. So let's work through these verses in Isaiah 53. Let's start with Isaiah 52, 13. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. This is the very same exaltation language that's used exclusively of Yahweh elsewhere in the book of Isaiah. Consider, for example, Isaiah 6, verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon the throne high and lifted up. Or consider Isaiah 33, verse 5 and verse 10. The Lord is exalted for he dwells on high. Now I will arise as the Lord. Now I will lift myself up. Now I will be exalted. Or Isaiah 57, 15. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. Now, in case you are wondering whether this might be said of anyone besides Yahweh, in addition to, to God himself, Isaiah 2 sets the record straight in verse 11 through 17, where it says, The lofty looks of men shall be brought low, the lofty pride of men shall be humbled, and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. For the Lord of hosts has a day against all that is proud and lofty, against all that is lifted up, and it shall be brought low against all the satyrs of Lebanon, lofty and lifted up, against all the oaks of Bashan, against all the lofty mountains, against all the uplifted hills, against every high tower, against every fortified wall, against all the ships of Tarshish, against all the beautiful craft, and the hardness of man shall be humbled, and the lofty pride of man shall be brought low, and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. So if the servant gets to be exalted, but only Yahweh gets to be exalted, who does that make the servant? Again, it makes him Yahweh, which we've already seen. So um, we continue, as, um, verse 14. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So the servant must undergo in, inhuman cruelty to the point where he no longer looks like a human being. His appearance is so marred, it's so awful, that people look at him in astonishment. Very similar to the description of the Messiah in Psalm 22, verse 6 and 7. But I am a worm, not a man, scorned by mankind, despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. Verse 15. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Leviticus 16 talks about how the, the, the high priest would come and he would he would uh, take the blood from the sacrifice and he would sprinkle it upon the mercy seat over the, overlaying the, the Ark of the Covenant. And that was said to be for the atonement of God's people. And so Christ serves in the capacity of a priest, which is also said of the Messiah elsewhere in the Old Testament, Psalm 110, most famously. Um, and as I said before, as we continue reading, we learn that the blood with which he sprinkles those nations is none other than his own blood. Kings will shut their mouths because of him, for that which has not been told them they see, and that which they have not heard they understand. And so we see that at his exaltation, human leaders in the highest places will be speechless in awe before the one who was despised. When he takes his throne, they will see the, um, the, the unfolding of power and glory such as they've never seen before. We read in Zechariah 12.10, the same event, 
where we read of God coming to deliver his people at the, from the hands of their enemies, when all the nations are encamped against Israel and God himself comes to deliver them, it says, I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. Revelation 1, 5 through 7, by the way, applies this to Christ, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. So Yahweh from Zechariah, according to the book of Revelation, is Christ himself. We continue. Who has believed what he has heard from us and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? So the question um, implied um, that uh, in spite of these and other prophecies, only a few would recognize the servant as the Messiah when he appeared. And indeed, Israel did not welcome him at his first advent. And Paul applies the same prophecy to the, the world at large in Romans 10, 16. He says, but they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? And we read about the arm of the Lord, which signifies God's power and his might. And indeed, as first coming, the nations did not recognize the mighty incarnate power of God in the person of Jesus, their deliverer. Verse 2, for he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. We see this language also in Isaiah 11, I alluded to previously, about being a, a shoot from the stump of Jesse and a branch from his roots bearing fruit. In other words, the Davidic dynasty has, by the time that the Messiah is revealed, it's faded away into obscurity. But from that, from that stump of Jesse... Notice that Jesse is mentioned instead of David in Isaiah 11. Why might that be? Because Jesse was relatively obscure compared to his son, David, who ended up becoming king of Israel. And so by the time that the Messiah is revealed as a descendant of David, um, as, as though it were back in the days of Jesse, where the, the Davidic dynasty, dynasty is obscure, and from that stump of Jesse comes this branch that will bear fruit out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. So the servant will arise in lowly conditions and wear none of the usual emblems of royalty, making his true identity visible only to, um, to those uh, whom he reveals himself, to, to whom he reveals himself. Verse three, he was despised and rejected by man, a man of sorrows, and acquainted with grief. So the, um, Isaiah here foresees the hatred and rejection by mankind towards Israel's Messiah, who suffered not only external abuse, but also um, internal grief over the lack of response to those whom he came to deliver and save. Um, Jesus, when he approaches Jerusalem in Matthew 23, 37, he says, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who stone the prophets and those who God sends to you, how, how often they've longed to gather you together, as a, uh, gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you would not. As one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. 
And so by um, using, so the, the, the prophet here um, speak for his uh, unbelieving nation's aversion to a crucified Messiah and their lack of respect for the incarnate divine son of God. So in the second century, there was a dialogue between a Christian apologist by the name of uh, Justin Martyr and a Jewish rabbi by the name of Trypho. And Trypho said, and they're debating, is Jesus the Messiah? And Trypho says to Justin Martyr, these and such like scriptures, sir, compel us to wait for him who as son of man receives from the ancient of days the everlasting kingdom. But this so-called Christ of yours was dishonorable and inglorious. So much so the last curse contained in the law of God fell on him, for he was crucified. Indeed, uh, this um, evokes memory of Deuteronomy 21:23, where we read that, um, speaking about a, uh, a hanged criminal, his body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him the same day, for a hanged man is cursed by God. And so, for Christ to be crucified, shamefully, naked, in front of his enemies, that was seen by many Jews as the ultimate proof Jesus couldn't possibly be the Messiah. This was the ultimate proof of his utter rejection by God. But Christ was, in fact, cursed. Galatians 3, 10 through 14 says, For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified by God, before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. So Christ bore the curse that was due to us because of our sin. He bore it on his own body on the tree. We continue reading. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. Uh, you can see that uh, he's using the past tense here, which is a common uh, literary um, style in Hebrew prophecy. It's called prophetic perfect. And um, even though the, it's bookended with future tense, this middle section is past tense to, um, to uh, drive home the fact that this is assuredly to be fulfilled. So as I was saying that the Messiah would bear the consequences of the sins of man, namely the griefs and sorrows of life, Though incredibly, the Jews who watched him die thought he was being punished by God for his own sins. Verse uh, 5, but he, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Again, this, this, this verse is filled with the language of substitution. The servant suffered not for his own sins since he was sinless, but as a substitute for sinners. Um, there was a letter in the second century by a Christian called Mathetus, which means disciple or student, to a pagan by the name of Diognetus. And uh, it was one of the most beautiful writings in the early church. Highly recommend that you read it. But he summarizes the gospel thusly. 
Next, after making these dispositions in his mind with his son, he left us to live for, for the meanwhile as we please, giving free rein to our unruly instincts and being at the mercy of sensuality and lust. This was not because he took any pleasure in those sins of ours. All he was doing was to put up with them. It was not that he was sanctioning that former era of lawlessness. Rather, he was preparing the present era of righteousness to the extent that we, who in those days had been proved by our own works unworthy to achieve life, might in these days be made worthy of it by the goodness of God. And that after clearly showing our inability to enter into the kingdom of God by our own power, we might now, by God's power, be made able. Accordingly, when our iniquity had come to its full height, and it was clear beyond all mistaking that retribution in the form of punishment and death must be looked for, the hour arrived in which God had determined to make known from then onwards his loving kindness and his power. How surpassing is the love and tenderness of God. In that hour, instead of hating us and rejecting us or remembering our wickedness against us, he showed how long-suffering he is. He bore with us, and in pity he took our sins upon himself and gave his own son as a ransom for us, the holy for the wicked, the sinless for sinners, the just for the unjust, the incorrupt for the corrupt, the immortal for the mortal. For was there indeed anything except his righteousness that could have availed to cover our sins? In whom could we, in our lawlessness and ungodliness, have been made holy but in the Son of God alone? O sweet exchange, O unsearchable working, O benefits unhoped for, that the wickedness of multitudes should thus be hidden in the one holy, and the holiness of one should sanctify the countless wicked." Isaiah continues, Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. Now, the Roman whip used for scourging was made of leather straps embedded with glass, bone, and metal hooks. With just one strike, the instrument would have been wrapped around Jesus' body, um, causing the glass, bones, and hooks to cut deep into his flesh. And as the whip was pulled back, the hooks would have stripped his flesh off, exposing muscles and bone. And Jesus actually seems to have been flogged twice, since in Luke's account, Pilate announces, I have found no grounds to charge this man, therefore I will have him whipped and then release him, whereas in Mark's account, Jesus is flogged after the capital sentence was given. Um, and uh, um, in fact, according to Jewish law, the maximum penalty was 40 lashes, minus one. Because um, they would do minus one in case they, they, they accidentally went too, too far. So 40 lashes was the, was the maximum, but they would do 39 to be safe. The Romans, though, were not limited to 40 lashes. Now, the physical sufferings of Christ were immense. But what availed to pay for our sins was not simply the physical sufferings of Christ on the cross. It was not the whip of the Romans. It was not the nails that went through his hands and feet. It was not the spear wound in his side or the crown of thorns on his head. But rather, his enduring the wrath of God against sin on our behalf. That was far worse than human suffering. In fact, the, the crown of thorns symbolizes the curse of Eden, right? Because the, the ground was made to bring forth thorns and thistles as a result of the curse. And so Christ wears the curse itself. In verse, um, verse 6, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. All of us have sinned. But the servant has sufficiently shouldered the consequence of sin and the righteous wrath deserved by sinners on our behalf. He stood in our law place condemned. Um, there's a, a parable. Um, times have told that uh, nomadic tribes once roamed ancient Russia. 
And the tribe that ruled the choices hunting grounds was ruled by a particularly wise and strong chief, who ruled not only because of his superior strength, but also because he ruled with utter fairness and impartiality. When a rash of thefts broke out, the chief announced that when the thief was caught, he would receive 10 lashes from the tribal whipmaster. As the weeks rolled on and the thief still hadn't been caught, he progressively raised the number of lashes to 40, a penalty he knew that he was the only one strong enough to endure. It turned out that the thief was his own mother, a frail old woman whom the chief loved dearly. So speculation immediately arose. Would the chief satisfy his justice by having her um, um, condemned to the prescribed punishment, or would he have her released, showing his mercy for his mother? True to his justice and integ his integrity, he had her condemned to the prescribed punishment. But true also to his, to his mercy and his compassion for his mother, just as the whip came down upon her frail body, he surrounded her body with his own, taking upon himself the justice prescribed for his mother in an infinitely greater way. That's what Christ has done for us on the cross. We read that he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. So the servant would not speak a word in his own self-defense. He would utter no protest. He would be utterly submissive to those who oppress him, sub submitting his will to that of the Father. As 1 Peter 2 says, For this is a gracious thing, when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if, when you, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if, when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to the, him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you are straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. As I continues, that like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before, before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. So the servant was to assume the role of the sacrificial lamb, um, which evokes again memories of the Passover um, feast and the sacrifice of that lamb, the smearing on the doorposts of its blood, so that, such that when the angel of death passed, saw the blood, he would pass over those homes. So Christ then is our Passover lamb. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? He was cut off from, from the land of the living. That's an idiomatic expression for to be killed. The servant lost his life to be the, sub, to be the substitute object of wrath in the place of the Jews, who by that substitution will receive salvation and the righteousness of God imputed to him. As Matthew said, it's a sweet exchange that takes place. We have Christ's righteousness imputed to us, and Christ bears the weight of our sin on our behalf on the cross. Verse 9, they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, though he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. So the servant's um, innocence meant that his execution was totally undeserved. 2 Corinthians 5, 21 says, For our sake he made him to be... Uh, who, it made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Verse 10, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. So though the servant didn't deserve to die, it was the Lord's will 
for him to do so. The Lord crushed him. He bruised him for us. So that that cup of divine fury that we read of in the Old Testament, Psalm uh, 75 and other places, that is the cup of God's wrath that the nation has taken, they drink it and they stagger and they die. That cup God took from us and he consumed it right down to the very dregs, such that when he cried out on the cross, Tetelestai, it is accomplished, it is finished, it's as though he turned over that cup of divine wrath, that divine fury, and not one single drop fell out. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring and shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hands. Um, so the, the word seed here, or zira in Hebrew, is, often, is sometimes used in a non-literal or figurative sense. Um, like Isaiah speaks about seed of evildoers, your seed of an adulterer, your seed of falsehood, and so on. Um, and it seems plausible that it's talking here about um, how the suffering servant would see his disciples transformed by the virtue of his work on their behalf, that he would see um, his spiritual descendants. Um, but it can also refer to just a generation. So Psalm 22, 30 and 31, for example, says, posterity, is the same word, zira, shall serve him. It should be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn that he has done it, or he has accomplished it. So in the context of Isaiah 53, 10, the implication would be the Lord's servant would see future generations serving the God of Israel. Um, and of course, this text also, um, when it says he shall prolong his days, that um, is very suggestive of resurrection. Verse 11, out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. The one sacrifice of the servant will provide complete satisfaction in set settling the sin issue. So Hebrews 9.26, the, the writer of Hebrews says, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. So the servant knew exactly what needed to be done to solve the sin problem and to justify many. And so through the divine knowledge of how to justify sinners, the plan was accomplished that his one sacrifice, he declared, by this one sacrifice, he declared many righteous before God. Uh, Romans 5.19 says, for as by one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, that would be Adam. So by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. And then finally, verse 12 Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death. So the servant's reward for his work will be to enjoy the spoils of his spiritual victories during his millennial reign on earth. It says he was numbered with the transgressors. So the servant assumes uh, a role among uh, sinful human beings, uh, fulfilled um, by Jesus when he was crucified between two criminals on either side. Yet he bore the sin of many. So the death of the suffering servant provides atonement. Um, and, there, and this is also, by the way, said of the high priest. Remember, the Messiah is supposed to be a high priest. This is something that's said of the high priest in Numbers 35-25, which prescribes that a manslayer who live in the city of refuge until the death of the high priest who was anointed with the holy oil. The death of the high priest provides atonement. And makes intercession for transgressors. So thus we read that the servant will justify many and make intercession for sinners. But here's the thing. Consider Isaiah 59, 16, which says that he saw there was no man and wondered that there was no one to intercede. Then his own arm 
brought him salvation and his righteousness upheld him. So we see that God looks around. He sees there's no one worthy enough to make that sort of intercession. So God has to do it himself by his very own arm. Again, implying the deity of the suffering servant in Isaiah 53. Um, okay, and the, the text um, also speaks about the, uh, the uh, office of, interse- of intercession as high priest, which begins uh, on the cross when he prays, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And it continues in heaven. Now, Job, uh, in the Old Testament, Job chapter 9, verse 33, Job complains that there's no arbiter between us who might lay his hands on us both, who might be able to intercede from man to God and also God to man and understand what it is to be suffering as he is suffering. And in Christ, Job gets his answer. Where there is one who can, by virtue of being both fully God and fully man, can intercede and lay hands on both. As Hebrews 7.25 says, consequently, he's able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Or Hebrews 9.24, for Christ has entered not into the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. And so in conclusion then, we see the marvelous um, exchange that takes place between Christ and us, we get imputed with Christ's righteousness, his intrinsic worth and value, so that, such that when God looks upon us, he sees not our filthiness and our sin and our vileness, our filthiness before a holy God. No, he sees the virtues of Christ. And Christ on the cross was treated as though he were guilty of all of the sins, the greed, the lust, the, the pride that we are guilty of. And so again, I refer you to my essay on my website if you want more detail on Isaiah 53 um, and very extensive interaction with the common Orthodox Jewish objections. And I would love to talk to anyone who wants to learn uh, more about the gospel or indeed the evidences for it from Messianic prophecy, for the resurrection uh, and other lines of evidence. Please feel free to chat with me afterwards if you would like to talk through any of that material. Thank you. Thank you, brother. Appreciate it. Um, each week we participate in a sacred meal where we commemorate, where we remember the death of the suffering servant on our behalf, Jesus Christ who went before us, who was resurrected. And on the night that he was betrayed, he initiated this sacred meal where he tore a loaf of bread and he said, this is my body broken for you. And then he took the cup and he said, this is my blood shed for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And so each week we invite believers and that promise and that uh, covenant to come and receive this meal. So let's stand church and prepare our hearts to respond to Jesus uh, with these final two songs and and this communion meal. Uh, Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this meal. Uh, God, we thank you for the word that we've heard this this morning, that uh, you truly are uh, someone who has borne our iniquity. You, you have uh, gone before us and helped us um, to, to have relationship with you. You've allowed us to have relationship with you because of what Christ has done on our behalf. And so God, now as we remember that your body was broken, your blood was shed, help us to uh, worship you in spirit and truth. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.